everyone, and either welcome or welcome back to the Gender Libertarian Podcast. If you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. Okay, guys, we are in the home stretch of the general election season. Uh, we have roughly two weeks left before election day, but two weeks and a couple of days, depending on what day you're listening to this. And this past week has been one, one hell of a week. <laughs> You can definitely tell we're getting very close to election day and we had a lot of stuff happen this week. So let's go ahead and get into it. I will go ahead and start where I have been starting and that is with the unemployment numbers. And there is a bit of bad news there. Uh, For the week ending on October 10th, unemployment, new initial unemployment claims rose to 898,000 which is a definite uptick from where we've been. We've been kind of in the mid 800,000. So is kind of creeping back up closer to 900,000, which is not good. I'm wondering how much of this is factoring into now also, obviously, school closings and everybody that would normally be working for schools. I wonder if they're now like, especially since it's the middle of October, it's pretty obvious if your school hasn't opened by now, they're not going to open for fall semester, I wouldn't think. So I I think a lot of those support staff might be finally hitting the unemployment rolls for the first time, but not good news. It's creeping back up, which is not what I wanted to see, especially not this time of year, because I mean, it's getting to be the holidays and it's just like, nobody wants to be unemployed over the holidays. That's just sad, you know? I've been there. It sucks. So fingers crossed that this is just like a a one week little blip and we kind of start going back down to falling numbers. But to have numbers rise that sharply that fast is not a very good sign. So we shall see what happens over the next couple of weeks. But moving forward to all of the other things that happened this week. Uh, We'll go ahead and start with the Barrett confirmation hearing. That went from Monday to Thursday, technically. Um, The only days that Barrett was there was Monday through Wednesday. So thankfully, thankfully, this confirmation hearing was much more subdued than the Kavanaugh hearing, which obviously we didn't start at the starting point of having increasingly ridiculous rape allegations being made against the person in question who was being confirmed, which that probably helped a bit. But we did still have questions about her faith and the the people of praise and all of that stuff, which we've already discussed that. Um, throughout the hearing, I mean, she seemed fine. I mean, very even-tempered. There's nothing here that would give anybody pause to not vote for her, like on the Republican side, whereas opposed to like the Kavanaugh hearings, you did have some people having questions about the allegations, about his temperament, everything like that. You're not going to get any of that with Barrett. So I suspect that she will be confirmed along party lines. Uh, The vote is supposed to be on the 22nd, which is this upcoming Thursday. And I mean, I I expect this is going to end the way that we all thought it was going to end. I tuned into a bit of it, especially on Tuesday, just just to see, because, I mean, of course, we knew going into it how this is going to end. Like, you know, she's going to be confirmed. So uh, on one level, it's kind of dumb to watch. But on another level, I mean, first of all, just to make sure that like nothing like insane happens because it is 2020 and who knows? I mean, (laughs) 
I put nothing past this year anymore, so just on the off chance that something disqualifying happened, I, I wanted to be able to say I saw it, but nothing of the sort happened. It was actually a pretty good hearing in the way that there was a lot of discussion about her judicial philosophy and uh, kind of things along those lines. And that is what's supposed to be discussed in a confirmation hearing. I'm not supposed to really know what somebody did in high school or whether they liked beer or what any of that. Like, I, I still cannot believe the Kavanaugh hearing happened, but thankfully this wasn't that. So we did actually have some conversations of value to come out of these hearings. And there was one section, and I think actually Ben Sass touched on this with her a couple of times over a few days, but kind of a civics lesson in how cases actually get to the Supreme Court in the first place. And this explainer was kind of in the vein of explaining that it's not as if the Supreme Court justices can just wake up one morning and decide they're going to overturn Roe or Casey or the ACA, or anything else. Like, there's a whole pathway that cases have to take, starting in the lower courts and then going up to the higher courts, and then eventually you can apply to have your case heard by the Supreme Court, and then the Supreme Court will decide if they want to take your case, if they think there's merit, if not, if they think that the lower court did not rule correctly, or that there are still, like, underlying questions that weren't entirely addressed. So, it was it was nice to kind of have that little civics lesson, because I think a lot of people don't realize that it's a process. Like, it takes years to get a case in front of the Supreme Court. And it was touched on briefly, but a lot of the cases that were filed last year in response to some of the the statewide abortion bans and the laws that were put in place, those still have not reached the Supreme Court status. And that's been over a year at this point. So yeah, it's not, it's it's a long process. And for the Supreme Court to take a case, there has to be some sort of question that merits their attention is they don't take every case that people apply to them. Like they only take about maybe 15 to 20 a session. And obviously hundreds of people apply to have their case heard by the Supreme Court. So definitely a very high selection process. And they can just decide that we don't particularly want to take up that topic. So we're not going to. So that was good. Um, A lot of discussion about stuff that people don't normally think about. And it it was interesting that Barrett is an originalist. And this topic came up a lot and it came up a lot online by people who do not understand what originalism is. So here's the best way to explain this. It's It's a judicial philosophy that says that when you're looking at a particular law, you take into account, you take into context what the writers of that law intended for the law to do. Now, contrast that with a textualist, which is someone more like Gorsuch. Gorsuch is a textualist. Textualists look at the law and just look at what the law states. They do not look at what the intent was of the framers of the law. They just look at the text of the law. So, like, a good way to explain this is, in the last session, we had that case where the Supreme Court ruled that discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, employment discrimination, is in fact illegal. And when Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion on that, he took a very textualist approach and saying that because the the defense of this, the, the opposite side of this was that, 
when the Civil Rights Act was written, when they wrote, you cannot discriminate on the basis of sex, they were not thinking about sexual orientation. They were just thinking about biological sex. And Gorsuch's opinion was that it doesn't matter. It says clearly you cannot discriminate on the basis of sex. Discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation is indeed discrimination on the basis of sex. And so therefore, it is illegal per the Civil Rights Act. So that that's that's textualism. How Barrett would have decided in that case, I mean, I don't know, but she would have taken into account what those who wrote the Civil Rights Act and the fact that they weren't speaking on sexual orientation when they wrote that and took that into account when deciding if discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation was or was not covered by the Civil Rights Act. So it's an interesting difference and it's interesting and and that's not to say that Trump has any kind of particular opinions on these sorts of things. I don't think he's really all that deep a thinker when it comes to this sort of stuff. But it, it's interesting to see that he put up somebody like Gorsuch and also somebody like Barrett that have two different judicial philosophies. Like I said, I don't think he really thinks about it all that much, but it, it's kind of stark. Usually you kind of pick one or the other. So it it, it was interesting to see the difference between those two candidates. Um, not a discussion on two particular areas of law that are going to be, well, one more relevant than the other because we already know she will be hearing a case on the ACA once she is confirmed and seated on the bench because there is one slated right after the election. And that case touches on the idea of severability. And to try to explain severability, especially in the context of the case that she's going to be seeing, severability asks the question, like, if a part of a law or statute is eliminated, is that elimination basis for elimination of the statute in its entirety? So when we're talking about the ACA, the argument here is that since the individual mandate has been eliminated, is that grounds to strike the entirety of the ACA? And so that is the case that they're going to be hearing in the very near future. Um, An ongoing theme of the confirmation hearings was Barrett being asked to basically prejudge certain cases, being asked point blank, would you overturn Roe? Would you overturn Casey? Would you overturn ACA? And that's, that's kind of how this conversation started anyway. And here's the thing. I understand why members of the Judiciary Committee ask these questions. Like, I get it. I know they're on TV. They're expected to ask these questions. A Supreme Court nominee can't answer those questions. I mean, you can't ask somebody, especially in the case of like severability and the ACA, on a case that you know she's going to be adjudicating, you can't ask her to prejudge the case. Like, that's absurd. Like, she can't answer for you if she would overturn Roe because, as she explained several times, which, God, the patience of this woman. I hate being asked the same question more than once. And I swear to God, she was asked this question dozens of times in different forms of what you would do in some crazy hypothetical. If you had a case in front of you, what would you do? Would you overturn Roe? And the answer is, and I feel like her answer is the correct answer, is that I can't answer that question for you. I can't tell you how I would judge on a case that's not in front of me. Like, I don't know what the facts would be in that particular case. I don't know what the question would be that is being put to me to decide. So I can't, I 
I, I can't commit to something that doesn't exist. And so, like I said, the poor thing got asked that question so many times. And it, it kind of also prompted a discussion on the topic of stare decisis, which is also another legal philosophy, which is a deference to case law that has already been passed, whether it is lower courts deferring to what higher court rulings have been, whether it's Supreme Court deferring to prior Supreme Court cases. And the idea is that under stare decisis, you don't overturn already established case law, especially case law that involves things that would impact how citizens behave in their everyday lives, like taking abortion. Women make the the kind of the, I'm sorry, not kinda, <laughs> they make the decision on whether or not to have an abortion based around the fact that abortion is legal. People make decisions on their insurance based around the ACA. So if you are going to remove those things and no longer have them there for people to kind of arrange their lives around, you have to have a very good reason for doing so. And she referred to it several times and she seems to be someone who does believe in stare decisis, which is kind of a a, a tell on how she might adjudicate any of those cases. But again, one never knows what a Supreme Court justice is going to do until a Supreme Court justice does it. And we go through this Every time we appoint a justice, I mean, we went through it with Kavanaugh, we went through it with Gorsuch, of this kind of trying to guess how exactly a justice would rule on this, that, or the other. And really, they always surprise you. Like, there have been times when both Gorsuch and Kavanaugh have sided with the liberal side of the court. There's been times when they've decided with the conservative side of the court. I mean, you, you can't really tell because the the point is that they're judging a specific set of facts that are in front of them at that given moment. So you can't really prejudge. And obviously, you can't ask somebody to prejudge a case because that is incredibly prejudicial. Like, how would you feel if you were a plaintiff or a defendant and you're going in front of a judge that has already said publicly on national television how they would rule in your case? I mean, that would be ground to ask for a recusal. So no, she can't answer that question. So, of course, it didn't stop anybody from asking and asking and asking and asking and asking and asking and asking. asking. <sighs> I, I, why do we have to have so many days of questioning anyway? Like, I, I don't really understand. Like, just ask and keep it moving. Like, I don't, I don't know. Anywho, <laughs> the other thing, well, actually two other controversies to come out of this. Both are just absolutely freaking stupid. Stupid as fuck. Um, the first one is the sexual preference versus sexual orientation controversy, which I wrote about that for this week's Substack, which if you haven't subscribed yet, go do that because I discussed this a little more in depth over there. But at one point during the confirmation hearing, um, she was asked, Barrett was asked about whether she would vote to uphold or not uphold LGBTQ rights. And in her answer, she used the phrase sexual preference versus sexual orientation, which is slightly outdated. But I mean, sexual preference and sexual orientation are used pretty much interchangeably 
without anybody really noticing until, of course, we need to find some bad faith reason to make an argument against somebody. So a couple of people online latched onto that as somehow this is some sign that Barrett is anti-gay because the, the reason that people have switched over to sexual orientation versus sexual preference is that preference indicates a choice and orientation does not. So... Yeah, that was just, oh my God, it was so stupid. It was so freaking stupid. But of course, because this is where we are at and Twitter runs everything now, um, two things happened. So later on in that same day, um, both Cory Booker and, and Hiroto, I think that's how you pronounce her name, both hammered her on that point because I'm sure somebody brought it up to them because they saw it online. We had think pieces written about it. And then, then the Merriam-Webster dictionary. I shit you not, people. Like, go go read the substack. It is all in there. But they went in and stealth edited the, the definition for the word preference to put down at the bottom where it, it had originally linked to preference and then also sexual. They put a note there that now that is using preference next to sexual is, is offensive. Like they did that. I have the screenshots in the Substack. Go look at them. But it was just, I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Like this stupid online controversy just caused the dictionary to like do an edit. Like I, oh my God. Anywho, the other controversy to come out of it was that Diane Feinstein made the just, I guess, most horrible faux pas ever of life of thanking and congratulating Lindsey Graham for running a decent confirmation hearing, which it was. I mean, it's definitely better than I thought it was going to be. So I'm a little bit relieved about that. So she thanked him and then she gave him a hug. So now Feinstein has gone from like feminist icon and hero to there are people that have called for her to like lose her spot on the Judiciary Committee over this. There are people who have pretty much intimated that like she needs to be put in a home because she's mentally slipping. I'm just like, what the fuck? She just said the man ran a nice confirmation hearing and gave him a hug. I mean, they've probably been working together since like before my parents were born because everybody in the Senate is freaking old. That's that's one thing that's always so striking when you watch these hearings. It's just like, oh, my God, these people are old. Jesus. But (laughs) so. So, yeah. So she's on the outs with a lot of progressives because she wasn't nasty towards Graham because of course the the stance on the progressive left and I and I still see this point of view too is that this confirmation hearing should not have taken place in the first place because of Merrick Garland of the fact that we are two weeks out from a general election and so anything that is less than 1000% nasty and vitriolic towards the proceedings themselves is just anathema so this is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> this is why we're probably never going to have bipartisanship again. Like, my God, if, if she can't just say, you know what? You, you did a good job, Lindsay. Like, all right, this wasn't a shit show. Good work. Without getting completely lambasted for it. Like, I don't, I don't know how anything else is going to get any better going forward. So anyway, like I said, the vote for the confirmation is on Thursday, the 22nd, and I'm sure this time next week she will be Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett. 
So, yeah, that'll be that. And then we'll have a general election. <laughs> and God only knows what will happen after that. But moving on, um, like I said last weekly roundup, we did not have a presidential debate this past week. What we got was dueling town halls. Biden had scheduled his first with ABC. Um, that one ended up being hosted by George Stephanopoulos. And then Donald Trump finally, like officially, I guess, I mean, we already knew last week that the debate wasn't going to happen, but I guess then he finally formally pulled out and then he got his own town hall at the same time as Joe Biden's on NBC. So it, it was set up purposely that way, allegedly, per the rumor mill, because Trump wanted to try to smoke Biden in the ratings. He wanted to have it at the same time, just so he could show that like, hey, look, I, I outdrew Sleepy Joe. Anyway, um, that's not what happened. And it's interesting that that is not what happened. Um, final numbers were 13.9 million people watched the Biden town hall. 13 million people watched the Trump town hall. Going into this, a lot of people expected Trump to kind of have the advantage here, not necessarily because he's a bigger draw, but because NBC was hosting it on more platforms than ABC. I watched the Biden one, and the only way to watch that one was either you watched it on the television, or if you were streaming it, you streamed it off of ABC News. It wasn't on YouTube or any other platforms or anything like that. It was just strictly the ABC platforms. Um, Trump's they did on NBC, MSNBC, CNBC, and their online outlets. So theoretically, Trump should have been able to beat Biden just by the sheer fact of there was more ways to watch the Trump town hall than there were the Biden town hall. So make of that what you will. Um, I watched some of the highlights from the Trump one. I watched the Biden one in its entirely entirety. I chose to watch that one because I felt like there would be something more of value and something more perhaps informative in watching the Biden one versus the Trump one. Because, I mean, you already know what the Trump one was going to be like. It, there was nothing, nothing surprising there. And it doesn't look like there was anything of particular surprise there, although there was certainly some noteworthy stuff. Um, as far as it went, it's kind of a grab bag for both guys. Um the most notable parts of the Biden one, aside from the comment that cops should just shoot people in the leg and not <laughs> anywhere else, which that's not how this works. Um, Biden said that he will say his stance on court packing before Election Day, but would not commit to it at the town hall, saying that he has to wait and see how this situation ends up, which is referring to the Barrett situation, which... We already know how it's going to end up like we knew then, like we've always known how it's going to end up. So I'm not I'm not entirely sure what Biden is waiting for here. I mean, I don't know why he won't just go ahead and commit one way or the other. But allegedly, he is supposed to formally commit to his public stance on court packing sometime before Election Day. Um, It was I mean, Biden is Biden. And I, I feel like I said this a lot during the Democratic primary debates, too. It's like, you already know what you're getting with Joe Biden. You already know about the gaffes. You already know about kind of the word salad, which there was one notable word salad. Um, there was one young black gentleman there who asked him point blank why black people should vote for him, other than referencing his comment that he made on Breakfast Club, that if you if you don't vote for him, you ain't black. 
So we got like this word salad that touched on like college and home ownership and how a Biden administration is going to make this easier for black people. And it was just kind of a mishmash of stuff that didn't really make a lot of sense, but they were words and they came out of his mouth. And this poor kid, I mean, and he was a kid, I think he was a college student, looked particularly unimpressed by the whole thing. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And there was a lot of commercials too, like a lot of commercial breaks. That was really weird to me. Like I I didn't think there was going to be any commercial breaks at all. And there was a good five or six. I mean, and it was a 90 minute town hall. We're not talking like two and a half, three hours here. I'm just like, good God, how many commercial breaks are we going to have? But there was that. And I mean, like I said, Biden is Biden. Is what it is. Um, Out of the Trump one, the big news was that he would not denounce QAnon. And also that he wouldn't say when the last time was he had a negative COVID test, which I'm more interested in the QAnon one at this point, because this is something that is starting to emerge coming out of the right slash the GOP, and that is a refusal to denounce QAnon. Oh boy. Um, You think they would have learned their lesson with the alt-right. You you would think that they would have learned that playing footsie with extremist wackadoos does not end well for the GOP, but apparently not. And apparently QAnon are going to be the newest fringe wackadoos that the GOP plays footsie with in order to get their votes. And... His whole spiel is like, oh, they just, they, they, they're against pedophiles. And they're, they're like, you know who, who is against pedophiles? Everybody who isn't a pedophile. <laughs> like, that's not like some kind of merit. Like, everybody's against pedophiles, except for people who like having sex with children. So that's not, that's also not like the entirety of what QAnon thinks. And whether he knows how the whole conspiracy started and all of that, and kind of how it is centered around him and kind of treats him like he's some sort of demigod that's going to usher in I don't even know what anymore like there was there was a, a rumor going around and that like QAnon people believed that this past Thursday that like JFK Jr. was going to come back from the dead because he's not really dead and replace Mike Pence on the ticket I, like I, I don't I don't even know what the hell is wrong with these people anymore but they've pretty much been taken over by the hashtag save our children people because of the pedophilia thing. And now it's just like, I don't, y'all are a hot mess. That's some hot mess shit right there. I can't, I can't even keep up with it anymore. But yeah, it's, it's becoming a thing for the right to not denounce QAnon. Um, Rona McDaniel was just on some show today and she also refused to denounce QAnon or repudiate them. Uh, oh boy. Um, Yeah. So there's that ball of crazy. So whether this changed anybody's minds, I highly doubt it. Um, As far as I know, I have not heard anything to the contrary. We are still having a presidential debate in person this upcoming Thursday. So if anything changes, I'll let you know. But as it stands right now, we are still scheduled to have what would have been the third, but will now be the second and final presidential debate, I guess. (laughs) I don't know anymore. Like, like scheduling does not make sense to me anymore. I have no idea what's going on anymore. This election season has gone completely off the rails. Like, we are in bizarre, uncharted territory. And then, and then we have the New York Post stories. I say stories, plural, because there's been, they've done a couple pieces on them. Um, 
I'm going to try to explain this as best I can. And as far as sort of my feelings on this from like a social media perspective, I do have a piece coming out for Arc Digital where I discuss that a little bit more, but obviously I'll touch on it here. But okay, I'm going to try to explain this as originally reported by the New York Post because this is, there have been like things added on to this story that I don't know where the hell they came from. Like, I don't know who came up with this stuff. But anyway, this story as told by the New York Post is that there is a computer repair shop in Delaware where somebody, somebody, because the the shop owner says that he couldn't confirm that this was Hunter Biden's laptop, but that he thought it was because it had a Bo Biden Foundation sticker on it, but also that he tried to call the person that dropped it off a bunch of times. So I don't like I, I'm not entirely sure how you do or do not know this. Like, I, I don't know. So anyway, he has this laptop that he assumes belongs to Hunter Biden. And now this is where things start getting kind of sketchy. Um, it, it was basically abandoned at the computer repair shop. And I am not entirely sure how the contents of the hard drive became known to the shop owner, but somehow or another, and and the shop owner's story has changed a lot as to who contacted the FBI, like the, the story keeps changing, whether he contacted the FBI, the FBI contacted him. Either way, the actual physical laptop is currently in the possession of the FBI and has been so since December of last year. But before handing over the laptop, the shop owner made a copy of the contents of the hard drive and passed that along to Rudy Giuliani's lawyer, who then passed it along to Rudy. Allegedly, this would have had to happen sometime before December of 2019, obviously. So we have this very sketchy sort of backstory here in provenance and the chain of possession of this information and that apparently Giuliani has had it since December of 2019 or earlier and is just now bringing it up kind of doesn't make any sense to me either. Um, Giuliani gave an interview to the Daily Beast where he intimates that this information was also shopped around to other Senate Republicans. I don't know. This whole, this story sounds sketchy as fuck. I'm sorry. No, no, no. This just, this has way too many fucking holes in it for it to be real. Whether it's Russian disinformation, I don't believe that either. Here's what I think happened. Hunter Biden's iCloud got hacked. And then people got this information. They got emails. They got videos of him smoking crack and having sex with some woman. Um, they got text messages, which is this is also what's making me think this is more of an iCloud hack because technically speaking, you can sync your text to your computer, but very few people do that because it's, why would you? So I'm I'm really thinking this is a hack, like a like an iCloud hack and not this weird cockamamie story about a found laptop in Delaware. And then now it's like three laptops. I don't know where the, the three laptop story came from, but now it's just like, Anybody who has money for three laptops is not paying to repair their laptops. They're just getting new laptops. So, anywho, the the first part of this story was that in the emails, it looks like Hunter Biden was trying to set up a meeting between his father and one of the execs of Burisma. And it seems like it did happen. 
like he he at least was in the vicinity of Joe Biden because he thanked Hunter for introducing him to his father. And then they're like, oh, I want to go get coffee sometime, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, so there's that. And then there's also in the emails and in the, the information presented. And honestly, why is anybody shocked by this? That it looks like Burisma hired Hunter Biden to get access to Joe Biden, which no shit, Sherlock. Really? Is that news to you? <laughs> yes, they paid this kid $50,000 a month because he's so fucking great. Oh my God. Anyway, moving on. Um, let me, let me, let me start with the second story. Let, let's go a little out of chronological order. I'll start with the second New York Post story and then we'll kind of move to Twitter and Facebook's reaction to the stories. Um, the second story that the New York Post posts is about a text conversation between Joe and Hunter Biden. And this is the one, this is, this is why I'm really thinking it was an iCloud hack because they also have like pictures of a family dinner and stuff like that. Like stuff that would be on your phone, not really on your laptop. You know what I'm saying? So anyway, um, let me go ahead and pull it up because this is just like, this is just the most heartbreaking thing. So let me go ahead and read it to you. So the first text message in the string, and this was from February 24th of 2019. So right before Joe Biden announced that he was running for president at 657 in the morning, this is what Joe Biden texted to his son, Hunter Biden, who at that moment was in rehab for drugs because we already know Hunter Biden has drug problems. Like this is not news. So he texts them, good morning, my beautiful son. I miss you and I love you, dad. Come on, man. That is so sweet. He loves his son. Which I mean, like, I don't I don't know why people seem to want this man to repudiate Hunter Biden or put distance between him. Like, that's his only living child. All of his other kids are dead. I mean, seriously, like this is all Joe has left. Like his first wife died. His daughter died in that the car accident. Um, Hunter Biden was actually in the car and was injured in that car accident, but obviously survived. Um, he had Bo Biden, but he has since passed from a brain tumor. And he was, you know, the good son, the one that went to the military and got the gold star. And he was, you know, the A-plus kid and he dies of a brain tumor. So Hunter's all he has left. So um, so after that text, um, Hunter takes this time to go on a little bit of a rant. And I'm going to paraphrase this. I mean, probably not the best time to go on this rant, but I don't know exactly how much phone access time one has in rehab. So he basically takes his time to kind of unload on Joe about the fact that around that time, people in the Biden family and people in Joe's staff were basically talking shit about Hunter to the press. And it was specifically about a piece that Maggie Haberman had put up calling Hunter Biden troubled and getting quotes from like the family and from people in Joe's inner circle, kind of intimating like, okay, if Joe doesn't run, it's going to be because of quote unquote family issues, aka Hunter and Hunter being kind of like, you know, what the fuck? Like, why, why is our family and your staff like talking shit about me to the press? Like, that's, that's fucked up. Like, you're making it sound like I'm the bad guy. Like, I'm going to be the one scapegoated if you don't run. So, He's honestly, I mean, pissed about that, which is understandable. Like you're in rehab, you're sitting here, you're trying to do what you're supposed to do. And like members of your own family are like talking about you to the press. Like that's, that's pretty shitty. And he makes a point that uh, 
Haley Biden, which was Bo's ex-wife and then became Hunter's girlfriend. There, there was one point where he, he said, like, she hasn't even talked to me in 17 days. And then when she did, she she called me to tell me that I'm an embarrassment to our family. Like, I, I get why dude's pissed. So um, his response, well, Joe Biden's response to all that is that I'll run, but I need you. H is wrong. H referring to Haley. Only focus is recovery. Nothing else. Your girls are so smart. Truly amazing. Very focused. Naomi very upset with Kay, which Kay's Kathleen, Naomi's mom, Hunter's ex-wife. When you can and feel like it, call positive my text, etc. is a target. Love. Like, I don't know what the New York Post was trying to prove by running this. I, I know how it was taken online, which is basically like, you, what, is this supposed to be a dunk on Joe Biden? That he, like, loves his son and cares about his family? Like, what? Like, what? What am I supposed to infer from this? Like, is this, are, are you, like, trying to say that this is some, like, something to smirk at or something that's funny? Because it's not. Like, addiction's not funny. Like, Joe Biden is trying to help his son as best he can. And, like, yeah, we know the Biden family is messy. Like, no shit. I mean, we th- this family has been in the public eye for what? Like, I mean, really, like, ever since Joe Biden was vice president, which has been, good God, 20 years now? I mean, when when he was Obama's vice president, I mean. So, yeah, 12, 8, no. Okay, I can't do math. It's like 15. But, yeah, we, we already know Hunter Biden is messy. We already know he has drug problems. We already know... He started dating his his dead brother's ex-wife, which, and that's another point in there that he is mad that kind of nobody urged him to make super clear that he didn't start dating her until a year after Bo died. So people have been intimating that this was like an affair that was going on while Bo was alive. Apparently not. Anyway, we know they're messy. We know that. I mean, I'm just, I don't know... I don't know what else to infer from this other than Joe Biden seems to be a pretty good dad who really loves his kid. So, anywho, now let's back up to the first story that was put up. Um, that was on October 14th. Obviously, the link started circulating on Twitter because, I mean, it's a story. So, Twitter and Facebook handled this two separate ways. Facebook didn't ban posting it. They just basically really throttled any post that had the link in it. Twitter outright banned people from posting and circulating the link up to and including locking people's accounts for doing it. So obviously massive, massive backlash to that. And Twitter's explanation for this was that the story itself violated two Twitter policies. The first one being posting someone's personal information because in the first New York Post story that shows screenshots of the emails, uh, the New York Post did not redact Hunter Biden's email and phone number. So that violated Twitter TOS on doxing, basically. And then the second reason they gave is referring back to the hacked materials policy, which that was put in place in 2018 to disincentivize people from hacking or taking hacked content and using Twitter as a way of distributing that content. And how they viewed this as was basically, here's a story 
where we're not sure of the provenance of this information. It's a little sketchy. People have got a lot of questions. And this was information that was gained in a non-consensual way. And so therefore, we are not going to allow it to be spread on our platform. <sighs> where to start? Um, uh, the, the, let me give you the TLDR of my argument here. This is why you don't ask social media platforms to be the arbitrators of what is and is not misinformation, disinformation, verified information, true information. Stop expecting them to do that because this is what you're going to get. I mean, I'm sure Twitter looked at this situation and said, this story is sketchy. It's a little over two weeks before a general election. Do we allow this to spread on our platform? If we do, are we going to be responsible for this if this is, in fact, a misinformation campaign? What's going to happen to us? Shut it down. Because that's the choice that every media platform is going to make in that particular situation. After 2016, the pressure on social media platforms to police the information that is on them has been intense. Intense. So now you're getting what you asked for. You want... You, you want social media platforms to be responsible for stopping misinformation campaigns? This is what you're going to get. This is what you get. So stop asking them to do it. Please. Just read it your own damn self. And that would have been my preferred response because if that were the case, I mean, this whole story probably would have been debunked already. But then, of course, because Twitter banned it, they became the story. People started screaming about censorship. Um, the next day, they backtracked on it, revised the hacked materials policy to be more specific that the, the material that's being distributed on the platform has to be the original like hacked material, not like an article about hacked material. So that has now changed, which means that now all of the New York Post stories on this going forward can be circulated on Twitter. <sighs> Just stop asking social media platforms to do this. Just stop. Now, of course, Josh Hawley is back on his bullshit again about how we have to have more tech hearings. I'm like, God, no, please, no more tech hearings. Kill me. No more tech hearings. I can't. Talk about seeing how old the Senate is. Oh, my God. Um, so a lot of people are still pissed at Twitter about that. And I've made this point several times on this podcast. Just because Twitter has a legal right to do something... Per Section 230, per the First Amendment, Twitter can take down whatever content it wants. You cannot compel Twitter to host any content that it doesn't want to because you can't. Congress especially cannot. So just because you can do something legally, though, doesn't mean you should. And it doesn't mean that it's a good idea to do it. This was a horrifically bad idea. Twitter did not need to step on this rake. And they did. And now people are looking at it like, okay, it's censorship. It's political censorship. You don't want this story circulating because it might hurt Joe Biden. And honestly, I don't think it's politically motivated. I think this is born of what happens when you put this pressure on social media to somehow vouch for the information that a third party posts on the platform, which is absurd. It's fucking absurd. I, I don't expect this of Twitter. I don't expect it of Facebook, but millions of people do. And it's just like, Oh my God. And this whole thing started, not this whole situation, but this whole needing to police misinformation and disinformation started with the Cambridge Analytica story, which has been proven to be utter and complete 
bullshit. All because one data analytics company had to go inflate their numbers to try to make themselves look more important than they are. And now we have this right here. <sighs> and we will continue to have this right here because nobody wants to hear the hard truth of this, which is that content moderation is hard. It's really hard at scale. And if the more you ask social media platforms to do it, the more chances they're going to have to fuck it up. And that's what happened here. They fucked up and they admit it and they changed the policy, which is the best that any of us can hope for is that this system actually worked the way it's supposed to. They made a decision. Everybody got mad about it. They said, okay, we'll, we'll reverse it. We'll change the policy going forward. There you go. That's kind of how this is supposed to work. Not with government intervention, not with another freaking tech hearing, but people saying, hey, that decision you made, it's a shitty decision. You should fix that. And there's nothing wrong with that. You should criticize companies for making decisions that you disagree with, even though they legally have the right to make that decision. And I think there's a lot of, of kind of in libertarian circles of people basically just shrugging their shoulders and being like, well, they have the legal right to do it. And that's that. I'm like, it's, well, it's not really. It's not. You can absolutely criticize a platform for making a stupid decision. And you should. You absolutely should. And that's what happened here. And it got fixed. So there we go. <laughs> yeah, but that obviously is still ongoing. And like I said, I will have a piece up on that probably by the time you hear this, if not soon thereafter. So kind of like I said, discussing kind of more of that social media aspect of it. So at this point, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. Um, who knows what next week will bring? <laughs> oh, no, I'm scared. <laughs> But I will be here to tell you all about it. So at this point, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. So if you did make it this far, thank you for listening. And if you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. Take care and until next time.